You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about neighborhoods and health. Joining me is Dr. Stephanie Main, who's a faculty member and research scientist at Policy Lab at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and also the Associate Director of Clinical Epidemiology at CHOPS Clinical Futures. As an epidemiologist, her research focuses on the influence of multi-level factors, including health policies, neighborhood environments, and health system factors on health behaviors and chronic disease outcomes. She is interested broadly in the social and environmental determinants of cardiometabolic disease development, with particular focus on smoking, obesity, and stress. Her work aims to identify risk factors and opportunities for prevention of obesity and future cardiometabolic disease among children and their families. Dr. Main received her PhD in epidemiology from Drexel University and completed a postdoctoral training program in cardiovascular disease epidemiology at Northwestern University. It's a very impressive background, and we are very excited to have her here with us today. So welcome, Dr. Main. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the podcast today. Thank you. Well, this is a different topic for us and for many clinical providers. It might be something that we haven't really thought much about before. So before we talk specifically about neighborhoods and health outcomes, I was hoping we could start with more of a theoretical framework of how you study neighborhoods. Like, how do you take a group of people and homes and all those other environmental factors that make up a neighborhood and sort of classify it or study it as one unit? Yeah, this is a great question, and it's actually a major challenge for the type of research that I do. Um, So it's something that seems simple on its face. If, for example, I asked you to think about your own neighborhood, you could probably call to mind pretty quickly what that means to you. But for research purposes, there are actually a lot of different ways that we can think about what a neighborhood is. So one thing that researchers will often do is use administrative boundaries, so like the zip code or the census tract that someone lives in, and say that's their neighborhood. And this can be really useful for quantifying things like the median income of a neighborhood or the percentage of the residents living below the poverty line. And it's useful because this type of information is collected by the U.S. Census Bureau and other entities like that for these types of neighborhood units. But sometimes these kind of arbitrary administrative boundaries aren't the most meaningful. So sometimes instead we'll think about maybe a certain distance around someone's home. And we could count up, for example, the number of tobacco outlets or fast food places within a quarter mile or a half mile or a mile of someone's home. That's another way we could think of someone's residential neighborhood. And sometimes we just ask people. We ask people to think about their neighborhood and let them define it for themselves. And then we'll ask them about their perceptions and feelings about their neighborhoods. We might ask them about how safe they feel in their neighborhood or whether they feel connected to their neighbors. And this can be a nice approach for helping us understand things about the neighborhood environment that aren't routinely measured by the U.S. Census or other administrative databases. So really, it depends on what type of neighborhood features you're interested in and at what kind of geographic scale that you might think they would theoretically matter. 
And we often are balancing this against what type of data is collected or accessible and at what unit it's being collected for whatever neighborhood feature we're interested in. But on a more conceptual level, I tend to think of a neighborhood as a relatively small area within a larger unit like a city where people are living and interacting with each other and that often has its own kind of identity or feel. But there are, like I said, a lot of different ways to think about this for research purposes. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the way that we define neighborhoods. Like you said, there could be zip code barriers or other sort of political barriers versus geographic structures, roads and streets versus just what your perception is of your neighborhood. So I really think that that's interesting and certainly makes your research even more complicated. Definitely. So tell us a little bit about why we as pediatric providers should care about the neighborhoods where our patients live. So it's been estimated that only about 20% of the variation in health outcomes between people is due to medical factors and factors related to the healthcare system. So much of that 80% of variation that isn't due to the healthcare system, I mean, some of it's due to individual level factors, health behaviors, but a lot of that variation is also due to factors in people's environments, which includes their homes, their neighborhoods, and larger scale factors like state or local or national policies. So why do neighborhoods specifically matter so much? Well, discriminatory policies like red and systematic disinvestment in neighborhoods, particularly where racially minoritized people live. These are historical and structural processes that have really directly led to the concentration of poverty in certain neighborhoods, which leads to huge disparities in the types of resources that neighborhoods have available to them. And these disparities in resources, which are really rooted in structural racism, can have a really big impact on children in terms of the types of educational opportunities they have access to or the types of other resources in their neighborhood, and also in terms of how much exposure they have to environmental features that can really impact their health on a day-to-day basis. So this includes things like exposure to violent crime, which can impact whether children themselves feel safe in their neighborhood, and it can impact whether their parents feel safe letting their children walk around or be active in their neighborhoods or play outside. Uh, It can impact families' abilities to tap into social support from their neighbors or whether there are places to buy healthy food. There are also a lot of factors related to environmental justice at the neighborhood level, such as how noisy it is, um, whether there's air pollution from traffic or industrial sites, whether there are trees or parks available. So there's all of these different factors which can really impact mental health for children and for their parents. It can impact children's ability to be physically active in their neighborhood or to get a good night's sleep. It can impact development of asthma or other health conditions that you see a lot in pediatric primary care and even you know development of longer-term outcomes like cardiovascular disease. And there's a really large and growing every day amount of research that indicates that these neighborhood features really do matter for health, even above and beyond things like individual level income or education or insurance status that we would think of maybe more more readily as being important. So I think as pediatric providers are caring for their patients and broadly considering their health and well-being, it's really important to understand the context of what children are experiencing in their neighborhood environments on a daily basis. Well, there's a lot there that we could dig into. That was a really great summary of why we should care. And now I'm starting to feel like uh, neighborhoods might be all I should care about. <laughs> you're, you're convincing me. Um, so let's start with talking about sleep, because that was one of the things you mentioned. And I know that so many of my patients don't get enough sleep. And while I counsel them about sleep hygiene, I know there's also a lot of factors that they can't really control all the time. And some of those include neighborhood factors. So can you tell me a little bit more about the ways that neighborhoods impact sleep. 
Sure. So sleep and the importance and relevance of environmental factors like the neighborhood context in sleep is actually a really uh, growing and dynamic area of research right now. Um, So in terms of how neighborhoods could impact sleep, so there's a few different ways. I think the first and potentially most intuitive way is thinking about what's in the immediate physical environment around someone's home. So if you live somewhere where there's a lot of noise or light, either from traffic or nearby businesses or kind of industrial activities, these things can make it hard to fall asleep and stay asleep just because of these kind of physical impediments to sleep. Another related thing is air pollution, which could come from traffic or, you know, industrial activities. Um, Air pollution can impact sleep apnea and snoring, but it could also potentially impact other aspects of sleep, like sleep efficiency, which is the proportion of time in bed that you're actually spending asleep. So those are ways that kind of your immediate physical context in the neighborhood can impact how a child sleeps. But then in addition to that, immediate physical environment, there are also aspects of the neighborhood's social environment that could be relevant for sleep. So this includes stressors like community violence and whether or not people feel safe in their neighborhoods. If you feel unsafe, it can lead to sort of a sense of hypervigilance that can make it difficult to really relax enough to fall asleep and to get a good night's sleep. As an example of that, there was a really interesting study I read that looked at children's sleep on the night after a violent crime occurred in their neighborhood, and it compared it to how those same children slept on other nights where there wasn't a violent crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was a really nice analysis because looking at those kind of within-person associations lets you account for all the different factors that would differ between children. So when they looked at it this way, they found that kids went to bed later on nights after a violent crime had occurred in their neighborhood, um, Mm. suggesting that it was potentially impacting their ability to fall asleep. And they also found heightened levels of cortisol, suggesting it was impacting their stress response. So that's one way that a neighborhood stressors could adversely impact sleep. But then on the other hand, there are positive neighborhood features like having positive social relationships with others in your neighborhood and having a cohesive, strong sense of community. These have been associated with better sleep in some studies. And a project that I worked on with colleagues at CHOP where we were looking at data from kids who were making the transition from middle school to high school. This is a project led by my colleague, Jonathan Mitchell. We were looking at how different neighborhood factors impacted their sleep. And so we found that neighborhood noise was associated with later sleep timing and with being less likely to obtain enough sleep. But we also found that the amount of tree canopy cover that was in the neighborhood around these uh, adolescents' homes was also associated with sleep, specifically with falling asleep earlier and waking up earlier. So that suggests that trees and green space could possibly be another neighborhood feature that could support healthy sleep, although the research is a little bit mixed on that. So there are actually a lot of ways that the neighborhood environment could impact how a child is sleeping. That's really interesting. And I know there's such a close association between sleep and mental health, but what I'm wondering is how much the neighborhood alone as a factor without the sleep piece of it impacts mental health. Sure. So similar to sleep, there are a variety of characteristics in a neighborhood that could impact mental health. And sleep could be one of the processes by which this could happen, but it's certainly not the only one. Something that's been studied a lot and that immediately comes to mind for me is feeling unsafe and experiencing violence in your community. This is something that can negatively impact mental health above and beyond its impact on sleep by making people fear for their own safety or the safety of people they care about or through, unfortunately, directly experiencing violence firsthand. Um, So safety 
safety is a major feature. Neighborhood noise has also been linked to poorer mental health as kind of a source of annoyance in the physical environment. But then on the other hand, having more greenery around and potentially trees in particular Mm -hmm. seem to be supportive of better mental health through helping people to feel more restored and by lowering stress levels. And even things that might seem pretty small, like how much trash there is on the ground or whether there are rundown buildings or overgrown, unkempt, vacant lots around, these things can also actually have a pretty big impact on stress and mental health. There's a research team at the University of Pennsylvania led by Dr. Gina South that's done a ton of really impactful work in this area. And in one of their studies, that was a qualitative study, they actually interviewed people who live near vacant lots in Philly. And people who live near these lots told them what, that when there were these visible signs of disinvestment and neglect in their neighborhood around them, it made them feel anxious or powerless or stigmatized. So I thought that that really drove home how what we see around us as we go through our daily lives, as we you know work, go to school, play, these things can have a really strong impact on stress and how we feel and our mental health overall. Mm, so important. And yeah, I love Dr. South's work. And yeah, it goes back to your point in the beginning about the sense of community and connectedness that you feel to your neighborhood and how that impacts your health. So embedded in what you were just talking about is this concept of safety too. And I know from my years of working in Philadelphia that many of my patients' parents would tell me that the safety of their neighborhood impacted things like their ability to take walks as a family or let their children play outside, ride their bikes, or walk to and from school. So can you tell us what you've learned about the chronic stress of an environment and how that impacts families and their ultimately the child's health? I think concerns about safety are such an important thing, you know, from a parent's perspective and when you're thinking about your child's health and well-being in general. Um, so this is an area that I've been very interested in for a while. So uh, in a study that my team conducted, we uh, filled a survey with 300 mothers or other female caregivers of preschool age children in Philly. And we focused on families who were enrolled in Medicaid. So we wanted to reach uh, families with lower incomes overall who might be disproportionately exposed to environmental stressors like neighborhood crime. And so we asked these moms to rate things about their neighborhood, like how safe they felt and how connected they felt to their neighbors. And we also calculated the crime rates in the areas that they lived in. And then we also asked them about their diets, their children's diets, their stress levels, and then a bunch of questions about their households and resources and stressors, things like food insecurity. And what we found was that parents who felt safer in their neighborhoods reported eating more fruits and vegetables, they had lower levels of stress, and they were even less likely to experience food insecurity than parents who felt less safe. And this was even after we accounted for a bunch of differences in other factors that we thought would be relevant to both these neighborhood perceptions and to these health outcomes, things like the mother's education, household income, and the poverty level of the surrounding neighborhood, too. And this is similar to things that have been reported by other researchers. This is an area that has been studied a lot, I think, because it is such an important aspect of the neighborhood environment. And so um, a number of studies have found that greater neighborhood safety is associated with greater physical activity and better mental health. And then in contrast, you know, uh, feeling less safe is really associated with chronic stress, as you mentioned. But something that's interesting is that in some studies, including ours, how people perceive their neighborhoods actually seems to be more important than more objective exposures like actual violent crime rates, for example. Um, so like we found associations between parents' perceptions of their neighborhood safety with stress and dietary patterns, but not with actual crime rates. And so I think this really highlights just how important people's feelings and perceptions 
assumptions about their environments are and how people might, you know, perceive the same circumstances differently. And those perceptions can really, really impact their health. But good news here is that there are relatively small scale interventions that can really have a big impact on how safe people feel in their neighborhoods. So I'm mentioning the Dr. South's work, you know, they their group has conducted really large scale randomized control trial that found that just cleaning up a vacant lot, greening it, putting a fence around it, that actually can make a really, really big difference in how safe people feel in their neighborhoods, how willing they are to socialize with their neighbors um, and also their mental health. And it even reduced gun violence in the surrounding areas, which I think is really amazing effects for something that seems relatively simple. And while this research has been largely focused on adults, since we know that parental stress and mental health are such important factors in child well-being, I think these findings are really important for kids, too. So I think that's, you know, neighborhood safety can have really negative impacts, but I think there are, you know, important things that we can do to help support safer neighborhoods. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And you mentioned a lot the perception of our neighborhoods. And I think I learned once that many people perceive the safety of public spaces like parks in relation to whether or not they see people there who are familiar to them or who seem similar to them in terms of their race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. And that's sometimes how we make our judgments about whether or not a public space feels safe to us. And I think this speaks a little bit to the cohesion of a community. You know, are the people who live there part of my community and do I have a sense of belonging and connectedness to them? Do you find that this is true and that relationships with neighbors can change the way we perceive the safety of our environment? Yeah, I think you're exactly right that a sense of belonging and social cohesion in a neighborhood can have a big impact, not only on how safe we feel in our environments, but also on health. So neighborhoods that are higher in collective efficacy, which is a construct that kind of combines levels of mutual trust or social cohesion in a neighborhood and how willing people are to take actions for the common good. So neighborhoods that are high in collective efficacy have lower rates of violent crime in general. And in our study with parents of preschool age kids in Philly, we found that parents who perceive their neighborhoods as having higher collective efficacy and social cohesion reported lower stress and they had healthier dietary patterns than other parents who reported less collective efficacy. And other studies have similarly found that neighborhoods that are high in collective efficacy or social cohesion, which is a component of collective efficacy, these are associated with better mental health, with higher levels of physical activity, and with better sleep, among other things, which I think could be operating, you know, partially through helping people feel safer in their neighborhoods, but also through that really positive social support that could help to kind of buffer against negative impacts of some of these other environmental factors. So I think social cohesion is a really important positive neighborhood characteristic that can really help to buffer against harmful negative environmental exposures that a lot of people unfortunately experience as a result of harmful policies and factors like structural racism. And social cohesion, as I mentioned before, is something that can be really fostered by, you know, these greening interventions or other things that help to support safe and accessible places for people to gather in public in a community, which could be, you know, parks or community gardens or other public spaces like that. Yeah. So you've been talking about the green space in neighborhoods a lot throughout this. And I think what we saw during the pandemic is that those who had access to outdoor spaces used them for socially distant recreation because that was the safest option during the pandemic. But those who didn't have easy access to those spaces were often further isolated and had less physical activity because there just weren't as many options. And I know you studied the impact of green spaces on pediatric obesity during the pandemic. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how this is an issue of health equity. 
So green space, um, and just to define the term a little bit for if anyone is less familiar, green space can include parks, trees, plants, and other sources of vegetation, just kind of greenery and vegetation in a neighborhood. So it's really a neighborhood feature that is strongly related to health equity. So neighborhoods that were redlined and really targeted for disinvestment in the early to mid 20th century have fewer trees today. And they have fewer, if you look at measures of overall greenness of an area based on satellite imagery, um, they have less greenery around as well. And also lower income and racially minoritized communities also have fewer accessible and higher quality parks on average. So this was really an important issue during the pandemic when, as you mentioned, so many places where people might normally socialize or go to be active were closed and outdoor spaces became especially important. So our study that you mentioned was a follow-up to an earlier research study from our team at CHOP's Possibilities Project. The Possibilities Project is a primary care innovation team. And one of the things we've been working a lot on in the context of the pandemic is trying to really understand how the pandemic has impacted child well-being using metrics that are assessed in pediatric primary care. So in that analysis, which was led by my colleague, Dr. Brian Jensen, we found that during the pandemic, there were fairly substantial increases in obesity among kids who were seen in CHOP's primary care network and that there were large racial and socioeconomic disparities. Mm. So in this follow-up study that we conducted, we really wanted to see whether the amount of green space in children's neighborhoods seemed to have any impact on those obesity trends. So this was in a population of kids receiving care at practices all throughout the CHOP primary care network. So throughout the Philadelphia metro area and parts of New Jersey, which included kind of mostly suburban and some urban and some rural areas, kids and teens who lived in neighborhoods that had greater overall vegetation, so more trees, more parks, more greenery overall, were less likely to become obese during the pandemic than kids who lived in neighborhoods that had less green space. Mm. And this was after accounting for a number of individual level and neighborhood level factors that we either had access to through electronic health record data or that we were able to link to our data set. So unfortunately, we didn't really have detailed exposure on people's access to parks specifically or their use or the quality of the green space in the environment. But the findings still suggested to us that green space could potentially be a factor that could help to mitigate some of the negative impacts of the pandemic, at least related to some of these obesity increases that we saw overall. And since we were using electronic health record data, we couldn't really specifically look at physical activity versus stress versus other potential, you know, mediators of that relationship. But those are things that I think likely could be involved here. But this is a really big issue that relates to health equity because not all neighborhoods have green space. Right. Not all neighborhoods have parks where kids can safely play or have trees, which could help to buffer against stress or have other positive effects. So these differences could really make up an important contribution to the large disparities that we see in health outcomes between neighborhoods and between places in general. Mm -hmm. This is related to the idea of tree equity, which is a concept that has been in the news quite a bit in recent years since it was a component of the Federal Inflation Reduction Act and has been getting attention from governments as well. One thing I do want to raise here, which is a worry that often comes up when we're talking about, you know, increasing green space in areas that have been impacted by disinvestment as a, a potential unintended consequences. The worry is that planting trees or building parks could potentially raise property values in the neighborhood and potentially lead to gentrification that could displace current neighborhood residents. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a way that a good intention could actually potentially cause more harm. So what I've really learned from reading and listening to people who work in this space and are really experts on that issue is that to avoid this happening, you really, you can't have a situation where researchers or a hospital or a local government goes in and kind of unilaterally makes changes to a neighborhood. It mm -hmm. needs to be a process really led by the community itself to make sure that any changes that are made are really addressing the community's 
these needs Mm -hmm. and being done in a way that's appropriate and acceptable to that community. That's a way to kind of mitigate the risk of these potential unintended consequences. So that's just an important consideration when thinking about green space. But I really do think that, you know, increasing the amount and access of high quality green space in neighborhoods is a really important public health intervention that can have a lot of positive impacts for children. Mm -hmm. That's great. Your research is so fascinating and the things that you've been discussing with us are really interesting. I think many people are probably inspired to put things into action. And so, as you just mentioned, there are some good ways and some not so good ways potentially to do that. But now that you've taught us a lot about the association between neighborhoods and health, how can we as listeners help our patients at either the individual, the community, or the state level? So I think we'd all agree that what we want is a world where every child lives in a safe and supportive neighborhood that has all the resources that would help them to thrive. But it can feel really hard as an individual to like know what to do about these huge issues like community poverty and environmental stressors. So um, as you and your listeners, I'm sure know, there's a, you know, a really big push right now to assess and hopefully help to address family level social determinants of health in primary care. So things like food insecurity. But I think it's also really important for pediatricians to understand the neighborhood level factors that do impact health in order to better support the families they care for in navigating the multitude of challenges that could impact children's health. So I think awareness on the part of clinicians about the types of environmental challenges that families may be facing and just how much these different factors matter for health is important in its own right, as well as understanding community strengths and assets that are available as well. Mm-hmm. I think in medicine and also in my own field of epidemiology, we tend to have a really big focus on individual level factors and health behaviors. And these things are really important. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also important to keep in mind how big of an impact our environments have on health outcomes and keep that in mind as folks are seeing patients and providing care. Another really important action, I think, is advocating for policies and programs that invest resources in communities that have been impacted by disinvestment and structural racism. I think pediatricians are really powerful in convincing advocates for things that really do matter for children's health. And so in addition to understanding what the issue is, um, another really important part of this is developing partnerships with community groups that are already working in neighborhoods every day and doing what we can do to support them in their missions since really as I mentioned before, the community residents are the ones who know best what their neighborhoods needs and how these needs should be addressed. But that being said, health systems can play a really big role in investing resources into supporting community-driven neighborhood interventions that can be really effective. So as an example at CHOP, we have the Healthier Together initiative, which is helping to fund a variety of environmental changes in the community where many CHOP patients live and doing so in partnership with clinicians and with community members. So They're funding things like the planting of trees and greening of vacant lots or conducting housing repairs for children who have asthma. So these are all relatively simple interventions that research tells us can actually have a big impact on the neighborhood environment and also on health. So I think advocating for more programs like that is important. And other children's hospitals have done really amazing work in this area, too. Um, Two that come to mind are Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus and Cincinnati Children's. But I know many others are also partnering with their local communities to conduct interventions and investments in neighborhood environments. And one last thing I want to mention is something I am increasingly seeing health systems doing, which is using the Child Opportunity Index. This is a multidimensional metric that really drills down on neighborhood features that are specifically chosen to be relevant to child well-being, which focuses on educational 
resources, health and the environment, and social and economic context. So this is a measure that's available for zip codes and census tracts, uh, at least in most major metropolitan areas, and I think for much of the United States overall. So our group at CHOP's Possibilities Project, we are looking at the Child Opportunity Index in conjunction with a variety of different health outcomes using data from our primary care network. But we're also thinking about how we can use this neighborhood information when we're evaluating the health equity impacts of interventions and QI, quality improvement and innovation projects. So I think that incorporating information on neighborhood environments when we as researchers or clinicians or hospitals, whatever, whenever we're evaluating how effective research interventions, quality improvement operations, or clinical care are taking this neighborhood context into consideration is another way that providers and health systems can use what they know about neighborhood context to help their patients. Wow, you've given us a lot of inspiration, and I love all of those ideas for clinicians and really for everybody to take into account about the neighborhood that they live in and how they can get involved. And I think for many of us out in primary care, when you're out in a community, I know many offices do invest in supporting the community where their office is set. And some do that through community gardens or giving back to families in the community or doing blog party type things to connect with the community. And I know there are many creative ideas out there that different offices have had to try to connect with and improve the communities around them and to partner with like you said, partner with the communities to see what they need. So I know many of our CHOP practices have done things like that, and we are happy to always share best practices with each other. And we appreciate the work that you are doing to help keep us well-informed on this and how it impacts our patients. So thank you to everyone at Policy Lab, at Clinical Futures, and with the Possibilities Project, and specifically for you, Dr. Main. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for being here today, and I hope everyone has a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.